0: 11. Adapted for work, they are carried by their slaves from an old nest to a new one, and, more extraordinary still, they require to be fed by their slaves, even with plenty of food clothes at hand, out of thirty of these ants placed by hubber in a box, with some of their larvae and pupae, and a store of honey, fifteen died in less than two days of hunger and of sheer inability to help themselves, when, however, one of their slaves was introduced, the willing servitor established order formed a chamber in the earth, gathered together the larvae, extricated several young ants that were ready to quit the condition of pupae, and preserve the life of the remaining Amazons. It must be noted that there are very varying degrees in the dependence of the ant masters on their slaves, in the recognition of this graduated scale of relationship and dependence. Indeed, will be found the clue to the acquirement of this instinct. The horse ant formiterufa will carry off the larvae and pupae of other ants for food, and it sometimes happens that some of these captives, spared by their cannibal neighbors, will grow up in the nest of their captor. A well-known ant, the Formica sanguinea, found in the south of England, is however, a true slave-making species, but exhibits no such utter dependence on its servitors as does polygoose. The slave-making habit is not only typically developed in the sanguinea's, but the bearing of the captives to their masters indicate a degree of relationship and organization such as could hardly be conceived to exist outside human experience. The sanguineos make periodical excursions, and, like a powerful predatory clan, carry off the pupae or chrysalides of a neighboring species. Thus the children of the latter race are born within the nest of their captors in an enslaved condition. As slaves, born and bred, so to speak, they fall at once into the routine of their duties. Assist their masters in the work of the nest, and tend and nurse the young of the family. The slaves, curiously enough in this instance, are black in color, whilst the masters are twice the size of the servitors, and are red in color, and that the slaves are true importations is proved by the fact that males and females of the slave species are never developed within the nest of the masters, but only within those of their own colonies. The slaves in this instance rarely leave the nest, the masters foraging for food and employing their captives in household work, as it were, whilst, when the work of emigration occurs, the masters carry the slaves in their mouths like household goods and chattels, instead of being carried by them, as in the case of Polygoose, Mr. Darwin gives an interesting account of the different attitudes exhibited by the sanguineas toward species of ants other than the black race from which their slaves are usually drawn, a few pupae of the yellow ant f a courageous and pugnacious little species, were placed within the reach of the slave-making sanguineas, a like chance presented with the pupae of their slave race was eagerly seized, and the chrysalides carried off. The pupae of the yellow ants, however, were not merely left untouched, but the slave-makers exhibited every system of terror and alarm at the sight of the chrysalides of their yellow neighbors. Such an instance demonstrates the existence not merely of perception but also of the memory of past experience, probably of not over-agreeable kind, of encounters with the yellow ants, when, on the contrary, a nest of the slaves is attacked, the sanguineas are both bold and wary, Mr. Darwin traced a long file of sanguineos for 40 yards backward to a clump of heath, once he perceived the last of the invaders marching homeward with a slave pupa in its mouth, two or three individuals of the attacked and desolate nest were rushing about in wild despair, and, one, adds Mr. Darwin, was perched motionless, with its own pupa in its mouth on the top of a stray of teeth, an image of despair over its ravaged home. The picture thus drawn is not the less eloquent because its subject is drawn from lower existence, although the pains and sorrows of ant life may not legitimately be judged by the standard of human woe. The explanation of the slave-making instinct in ants begins with the recognition of the fact that many ants, not slave-makers, store up pupae of other species for food, if we suppose that some of the pupae, originally acquired through a cannibal-like instinct, came to maturity within the nest of their captors, and in virtue of their own inherited instincts engaged in the work of the hive, we may conceive of a rational beginning of the slave-making instinct, if, further, the captors learn to appreciate the labors of their captives, as lightening their own work, the habit of collecting pupae as slaves might succeed and supersede that of collecting them for food, in any case we should require to postulate on the part of the slave-makers a degree of instinct altogether unusual in insects, or, indeed, in higher animals, but that such instinct is developed in ants other than slave-makers admits of no dispute. The strengthening, through repetition, of the habitful to the species may thus be credited with the beginning of the practice of slavery amongst ants, whilst special circumstances such as the number of the slaves as compared with the number of masters would tend to develop a greater or less degree of dependence of The captors or their servitors. Hubber, for instance, informs us that the Fesca slaves of the Sanguineas of Switzerland work with their masters in building the nest, they close and open the doors of the hive, but their chief office appears to be that of hunting for plant lice. In England, on the contrary, the slaves are strictly household servants, rarely venturing out of doors. Such differences depend most probably on the fact that a greater number of slaves occur in Swiss than in English nests and they may therefore be employed in a wider range of duties on the continent than at home, a fewer number of slaves, a greater aptitude on the part of the slaves for their duties. The inability of the masters to perform the duties of the slaves each or all of these causes combined would serve to increase the value of the servitors, and at the same time to reduce the independence of the masters. This increase of the value of the slaves as active factors in the ant community might at length proceed to such extremes as we see exemplified in the polygoos already referred to a race which has become literally unable to feed itself, and to discharge the simplest duties of ant existence, and whose actual life is entirely spent in marauding expeditions on the nests of its neighbors, the subject of the general intelligence of ants, and of their ability to adapt themselves to awkward and unusual circumstances, may be briefly touched upon by way of conclusion. Between the reason and intelligence of higher animals and the instinct of ants there is unquestionably a great gulf fixed, I make this statement unhesitatingly, notwithstanding that I should no more willingly attempt to define instinct than to give an exact definition of insanity. In the latter case one may make the definition so limited as practically to exclude all save one class of cases, or so wide as to include even the judge on the bench. In the case of instinct, The rigid definition of one authority might cause us to regard it as the exclusive property of lower forms and as having no relationship whatever with the mental powers of higher beings, or, on the other hand, as being but a modified form of, or in some respects identical with, these very powers, we know too little respecting the so-called, automatic, powers and ways, even of higher animals, to dogmatize regarding the acts of lower animals. But we may safely assume that one apparent ground or distinction between instinct and reason may be found in the common incompetence of instinct to move out of the beaten track of existence, and in the adaptation of reason, through the teachings of experience, to new and unwanted circumstances. Let Drive Carpenter speak as an authority on such a subject. The whole nervous system of invertebrate animals, then, may be regarded as ministering entirely to automatic action, and its highest development, as in the class of insects is coincident with the highest manifestations of the instinctive powers, which, when carefully examined, are found to consist entirely in movements of the excitomotor and motor kinds. The terms excitomotor and motor are applied to nervous actions resulting in movements of varying kinds, and produced by impressions made on nervous centers, but without any necessary emotion, reason, or consciousness. When we attentively consider the habits of these animals we find that their actions, though evidently adapted to the attainment of certain ends, are very far from evincing a designed adaptation on the part of the beings that perform them. For, in the first place, these actions are invariably performed in the same manner by all the individuals of a species, when the conditions are the same, and thus are obviously to be attributed rather to a uniform impulse than to a free choice. The most remarkable example of this being furnished by the economy of these wasps, and other social insects, in which every individual of the community performs its appropriated part with the exactitude and method of a perfect machine, the very perfection of the adaptation, again, is often of itself a sufficient evidence of the unreasoning character of the beings which perform the work, for if we attribute it to their own intelligence, we must admit that this intelligence frequently equals, if it does not surpass, that of the most accomplished human reasoner, Appealing to the most recent observations on ants, we may find evidence of the truth of Drive Carpenter's statements, whilst at the same time we may also detect instances of the development of higher powers which are hardly to be classed as automatic, and which, in certain species as in the excitons, charmingly described by Mr. Belton, the naturalist in Nicaragua, may be said to be elevated above the common instincts of the race. Dr. Henry Mobsley has also well summed up the relationship of the acts of these insects to the acts of higher forms, and to new adaptations when he says, I do not say that the N an- and the bee are entirely destitute of any power of adaptation to new experiences in their lives that they are, in fact, purely organized machines, acting always with varying regularity, it would appear, indeed, from close observation that these creatures do sometimes discover in their actions traces of a sensibility to strange experiences, and of corresponding adaptations of movements, we cannot, moreover, conceive how the remarkable instincts which they manifest can have been acquired originally, except by virtue of some such power, but the power in them now is evidently of a rudimentary kind, and must remain so while they have not those higher nerve centers in which the sensations are combined into ideas, and perceptions of the relations of things are acquired, granting, however, that the bee or ant has these traces of adaptive action, it must be allowed that they are truly rudiments of functions, which in the supreme nerve centers we designate as reason and volition, such a confession might be a trouble to a metaphysical physiologist, who would thereupon find it necessary to place a metaphysical entity behind the so-called instincts of the bee but can be no trouble to the inductive physiologist he simply recognizes an illustration of a physiological diffusion of properties, and of the physical conditions of primitive volition, and traces in the evolution of mind and its organs, as in the evolution of other functions and their organs, a progressive specialization and increasing complexity. The recently published experiments of Sir John Lubbock show that ants under certain circumstances are both stupid and devoid of any intelligent comprehension in the way of surmounting difficulties, but this distinguished observer has also shown that as regards communication between ants, and in the regulation of the ordinary circumstances of their lives, these insects exhibit in so high degree of intelligence, and exhibit instincts of a very highly developed kind, still, making every allowance for the development of extraordinary mental power in some species of ants, there can be little doubt of the purely automatic beginnings and nature of most, if not all, of the acts of ordinary ant existence. The young ant, wasp, or bee, will begin its labors and discharge them as perfectly at the beginning of its existence as a perfect insect, as at the close of life. Here there is no experience, no tuition, no consciousness, no reason. And no power save such as had been transferred to the insect as a mere matter of heredity and derivation from its ancestors, who live by an unconscious rule of thumb, so to speak. It is very hard at first to convince oneself, when watching an ant's nest, that intelligence and consciousness play little or no part in the apparently intelligent operation of these insects. But to assume the contrary would be to maintain that the insect stands on an equal footing to man himself and for such a supposition there is neither lawful ground nor sympathy. The marvelous instinct of lower life stands on a platform of its own, has its own phases of development, and probably its own unconscious way of progress. The higher reason and intellect of humanity similarly possesses its own peculiar standard, rate, and method of culture. A man may seek and find in the ways of lower existence not merely a lesson in the ordering of his existence, but some comfort. Also, in the thought that the progress of lower nature is not unknown in the domain of human hopes and aspirations. The wild llama from a journal of researches, etc., by Charles Darwin, the guanaco, or wild llama, is the characteristic quadruped of the plains of Patagonia, it is the South American representative of the camel in the east. It is an elegant animal in a state of nature, with a long slender neck and fine legs. It is very common over the whole of the temperate parts of the continent. As far south as the islands near Cape Horn, it generally lives in small herds of from half a dozen to thirty in each, but on the banks of the St. Cruz we saw one herd which must have contained at least five hundred. They are generally wild and extremely wary. Mr. Stokes told me that he one day saw through a glass a herd of these animals which evidently had been frightened and were running away at full speed, although their distance was so great that he could not distinguish them with his naked eye. The sportsman frequently receives the first notice of their presence, by hearing from a long distance their peculiar shrill neighing note of alarm. If he then looks attentively, he will probably see the herd standing in a line on the side of some distant hill. On approaching nearer, a few more squeals are given, and off they set at an apparently slow, but really quick canter, along some narrow beaten track to a neighboring hill. If, however, by chance, he abruptly meets a single animal, or several together, they will generally stand motionless and intently gaze at him, then perhaps move on a few yards, turn round, and look again. What is the cause of this difference in their shyness? Do they mistake a man in the distance for their chief enemy, the puma? Or does curiosity overcome their timidity? That they are curious is certain, for if a person lies on the ground, and plays strange enigmas, such as throwing up his feet in the air, they will almost always approach by degrees to reconnoiter him. It was an artifice that was repeatedly practised by our sportsmen with success, and it had moreover the advantage of allowing several shots to be fired, which were all taken as parts of the performance. On the mountains of the Tierra del Fuego, I had more than once seen a guanaco. On being approached, not only may and squeal, but prance and leap about in the most ridiculous manner. Apparently in defiance as a challenge, these animals are very easily domesticated and I have seen some thus kept in northern Patagonia near a house, though not under any restraint. They are in the state very bold, and readily attack a man by striking him from behind with both knees. It is asserted that the motive for these attacks is jealousy on account of their females. The wild guanacos, however, have no idea of defense, even a single dog will secure one of these large animals, till the huntsman can come up. In many of their habits they are like sheep in a flock. Thus when they see men approaching in several directions on horseback, they soon become bewildered, and know not which way to run. This greatly facilitates the Indian method of hunting, for they are thus easily driven to a central point, and are encompassed. The Guanacos readily take to the water, several times at Port as they were seen swimming from island to island. Myron, in his voyage, says he saw them drinking salt water. Some of our officers likewise saw herd apparently drinking the briny fluid from a salina near Cape Blanco. I imagine in several parts of the country, if they do not drink salt water, they drink none at all. In the middle of the day they frequently roll in the dust, in saucer-shaped hollows. The males fight together, to one day pass aid quite close to me, squealing and trying to bite each other, and several were shot with their hides deeply scarred. Herds sometimes appear to set out on exploring parties, at the Hia Blanca, where, within thirty miles of the coast, these animals are extremely unfrequent. I one day saw the tracks of thirty or forty, which had come in a direct line to a muddy saltwater creek. They then must have perceived that they were approaching the sea, for they had wheeled with the regularity of cavalry, and had returned back in as straight a line as they had advanced. The Guanacos have one singular habit, which is to me quite inexplicable, namely, that on successive days they drop their dung in the same defined heap. I saw one of these heaps which was eight feet in diameter, and was composed of a large quantity. This habit, according to Emador Dorbigny, is common to all the species of the genus, it is very full to the Peruvian Indians, who use the dung for fuel, and are thus saved the trouble of collecting it. The Guanacos appear to have favorite spots for lying down to die, on the banks of the St. Cruz in certain circumscribed spaces, which were generally bushy and all near the river, the ground was actually white with bones, on one such spot I counted between ten and twenty heads, I particularly examined the bones, they did not appear, as some scattered ones which I have seen, gnawed or broken, as if dragged together by beasts of prey, the animals in most cases must have crawled, before dying, beneath and amongst the bushes, Mr. Byron informs me that during a former voyage he observed the same circumstances on the banks of the Rio Gallegos. I do not at all understand the reason of this, but I may observe that the wounded guanacos at the St. Cruz invariably walked towards the river, that street jago in the Cape de Islands. I remember having seen in a ravine a retired corner covered with bones of the goat. We at the time exclaimed that it was the burial ground of all the goats in the island. Bats from studies of animated nature by W.S. Dallas, F.L.S., among the sounds which greet the ear of the wayfarer as the shades of evening deepen into night, one of the commonest is a rather faint chirping noise which comes mysteriously from overhead. On looking up in search of the source of this peculiar sound, we may see a small, dark, shadow-like creature sweeping to and fro with great rapidity. It is one of the curious groups of animals called bats, representatives of which are to be met with in all countries always active at night or in the twilight, and presenting a remarkable general similarity of structure, although in some respects they may differ considerably in habits, in the British Islands some fourteen species have been distinguished, like the owls, with which they share the dominion of the evening air, the bats have a perfectly noiseless flight, their activity is chiefly during the twilight, although some species are later, and in fact seem to keep up throughout the whole night, as they rest during the day, concealed usually in the most inaccessible places they can find, and are seen only upon the wing, their power of flight is their most striking peculiarity in the popular mind, and it is perhaps no great wonder that by many people, both in ancient and modern times they have been regarded as birds, nevertheless, their hairy bodies and leathery wings are so unlike anything that we ordinarily understand as pertaining to a bird, that opinion was apparently always divided. As to the true nature of these creatures, a mouse with wings, as Goldsmith called it once, according to James Boswell, is certainly a curious animal, and very difficult to classify so long as the would-be systematist has no particularly definite ideas to guide him. The likeness of the bat to a wing mouse has made itself felt in the name given to the creature in many languages, such as the series of the French and the flitter mouse of some parts of England, the latter being reproduced almost literally in German. Dutch, and Swedish, while the Danes called the bad a phlogenmus, which has about the same meaning, and the Swedes had a second name, later mus, evidently referring to the texture of the wings, as well as to the mouse-like character of the body, but so soon as we have definite characters to appeal to in classification, we find no difficulty in assigning these puzzling creatures to their proper place in the system, Bats produce their young alive, and suckle them, the milk being produced by special glands, now, these are characters which are peculiar among all animals to the vertebrate class Mammalia. They possess also other characters that are unmistakably mammalian, leaving out of consideration the structure of the internal organs. They have teeth implanted in sockets in the jaws, forelimbs, and a hairy covering to the skin, so that they possess more decidedly mammalian characters than some other members of the class, such as the marine whales and dolphins Cetacea and manatee (Sirenia) which are still often spoken of as fishes, in point of fact, although organized for flight, the bat may, without any violence to a language, be spoken of as a quadruped, for its forelimbs contain all the parts found in those of other mammals fully developed, and they come into use when the creature is walking on the ground, perhaps the special characteristics of the bats will be brought out most distinctly by a comparison of their structure with that of a bird seeing that the modification of the forelimbs into a wings is their most striking distinction from other mammalia, for, although some other members of the class are spoken of as, flying, such as the flying squirtles, flying lemurs, and flying phalangers, these creatures do not really fly, but merely glide through the air to considerable distances by the action of a broad fold of skin which runs down each side of the body, and which, when stretched between the extended limbs, Boys, the creatures up in the air after the fashion of a parachute. Most of us must have had occasion to pick the bones of a bird's wing, a piece of practical anatomy which may serve us in good stead at present. They consist of a long bone, which may be called the arm bone humerus, jointed to the shoulder bones the so-called side bones of a fowl or turkey, followed by a pair of parallel bones constituting the forearm, at the end of which we find two or three small bones, then two parallel bones united at their extremities and some smaller joints terminating the whole, we need say nothing about the arm bone and the two bones of the forearm, the peculiarity of bird structure lying chiefly in the terminal portion of the limb, or the hand, here we find, after two little bones forming the wrist, a pair of long bones as above described, firmly united both at base and apex, and on the outside of the base of these, close to the wrist, a small bone, which may be either free or soldered to the others, and which represents the thumb in the human hand, at the other end of the piece formed by the two united bones, the limb is continued by two joints, forming a second finger, inside of which there is usually a single small bone, representing a third finger, but all these parts are stiffly attached to one another, admitting a very little motion, so that the whole hand forms as it were a single piece, the bony structure of the bird's wing is in point of fact a rod hinged into places, at the elbow and the wrist, for the convenience of being folded into a small compass. The flight of the bird is effected by the agency of a number of stiff feathers implanted in the skin covering the bones and muscles of the arm and hand. These fold together like the sticks of a fan when the wing is folded, and are spread into an elastic instrument for striking the air when the different sections of the bony framework are extended by the action of their respective muscles. In the bat the structure is very different, of course, as in the vertebrata generally. We find in the bat's forelimb the same three main sections as in birds, and as the function of the limb is the same, and a certain stiffness is necessary in the extended organ, the movements of the joints at the elbow and wrists are hinge-like, but the bones of the arm and forearm are longer and more slender, especially the latter, and in this part, in place of the two parallel bones of the bird's wing, we find in the bat only a single long bone representing the smaller bone of the bird the larger one being usually reduced to very small dimensions, and firmly united with the other into a single piece, although it still forms the elbow joint, at the other end of this long forearm we find some small wrist bones and to these the fingers are articulated, in birds, as we have seen, only two or three fingers are represented, and these are more or less reduced in size, and the most important of them soldered together, Bats, on the contrary, show the whole five fingers as distinctly as in the hand of man or any other mammals. The first of them, or the thumb, is short, slender, and flexible, and composed of three joints, the other four are very long and slender, but chiefly composed of the metacarpal bones, corresponding to those of the palm of the human hand. The first, or index finger, indeed, in many bats, consists of this bone alone, but in the others it is followed by two or three slender joints gradually tapering to the extremity the second finger corresponding to our middle finger being always the longest of all just as is the bird's wing these various parts can be folded together or extended by the action of the muscles but in the bat, the long fingers become separated when the wing is stretched out and by this action they at the same time stretch a thin leathery double membrane in which they are enclosed which is thus converted into a broad surface for striking the air in flight this membrane is continued from the fingers to the sides of the body, and even to the hind limbs, which are often included in it to the ankle joints, while in the great majority of bats there is even a further portion of membrane between the hind legs, enclosing the hole or a portion of the tail. There is usually also a narrow strip of the same membrane in front of each arm, so that the skin of the animal is extended as much as possible, in order to give it support in its aerial evolution. It is to be noted that the long second finger extends to the extreme point of the wing and that the first finger runs close beside it and thus assists in stiffening that part of the organ. The thumb is left free, and is furnished with a rather strong hooked claw. Supported by the action of these great leathery wings, the bat flies about almost incessantly during the twilight, and often late into the night. In full career its flight is swift, though perfectly noiseless and it has the power of executing rapid turns and changes of direction with the greatest facility, as required for the capture of its prey, which, in the great majority of cases, consists of the insects of various kinds that in most places fly by night, in pursuit of these, the bats flits rapidly about trees, houses, and other buildings, now and then resting by clinging for a moment to the rough surfaces of the walls or the trunks and branches of trees, old country churchyards which are usually full of trees, are naturally favorite haunts of these nocturnal insect hunters, offering them an excellent field for the chase of their prey, while at the same time, the church itself, with its architectural peculiarities, usually affords them a safe retirement during the day in the dark and secluded corners of its structure, hence in the popular mind the bat has long been associated with the churchyard that spot so dreaded that few can pass through it after nightfall without experiencing certain peculiar feelings, so that it is no great wonder if a portion of the superstitious fear thus engendered has transferred itself to these frail and harmless creatures, and given them and their companions, the owls, something of an evil reputation, and it must be confessed that when seen against the light, flitting silently overhead, there is something weird in the bat's form, and this is no doubt the reason why. While angels of all kinds are represented with birds' wings, those of bats have, by universal consent, always been conferred upon demons, dragons, and similar uncanny creatures. When it descends from its flight upon the ground or any solid body, the bat becomes to all intents and purposes a genuine quadruped, the fingers being drawn together, with the membranes of the wings thrown into folds between them. The whole hand of the creature is brought up parallel to the forearm, and so got out of the way and the animal can then walk more or less easily. Its hind legs, though short and rather feeble, being perfectly formed, and the forelimbs, from which the thumbs with their sharp claws now project freely, becoming available for terrestrial progression. Nevertheless, this progression is generally rather clumsy, as indeed might be expected from creatures so curiously constructed. While on the wing, our bats are constantly engaged in the pursuit of the numerous insects of various kinds which, like themselves, are active in the evening and after dark, and of these they must destroy immense quantities, the swarms of delicate gnats and midges which disport themselves in the most complicated aerial dances, moths of all kinds, and even the hard-shelled beetles, many of which fly about in